I Read Comics, show number 72. Got a couple things I wanted to start with this time around. One is that uh, in browsing around the web, I found <laughs> that there was fanfic for the Iron Man movie about two days after the movie opened, which kind of stunned me that people were writing already, but is a testament to the kind of movie that it was, very, very character driven. And uh, I haven't really taken the time to look around since then, but I'm guessing there's a lot of fanfic based around the movie and it will continue to grow. You know, God help us when they make more movies because there'll be even more. The other thing that came to my attention is that there is a new, new to me, service for downloadable comics called Wowio, which is spelled W-O-W-I-O. And it's free. You can go there and download things for free and the creators get paid for them, which is extremely cool. When you download them, they're PDFs. There's a limit of uh, three a day, I think. And I was alerted to this because Chris Wisnia, my friend who does Doris Danger and Dr. DeBunko, sent out an email announcing that his comics were up on Wowio, which is totally awesome. There's a lot of good stuff there. Um, it took me a long time to browse around and I'm still not through. I'm up to like the the H's or something. There's a lot of independent stuff on there, which you would expect. There isn't anything from Marvel and DC, as you would also expect. But there's some really good things, including a comic called Artesia, which a couple of people had recommended to me. And I was just putting off buying because it looked expensive. But now if I can download it for free from this site, that'll give me a chance to explore it. So I think everybody should go and just start downloading stuff. In fact, go and download stuff you already have just so the the creators get paid. Keep downloading stuff. It's free. The creators get paid. It's a great way to support independent comics. And if you do this, and if you find something indie that looks really interesting, let me know about it. If you're a creator and you want to promote your comic book, go to Wowio and sign up for it. I have no idea how it works, but somehow you get paid based on the number of people who download your comics. The only bad side is that um, you can't do it if you live outside of the U.S. It might be North America, um, but I've heard from a couple people who are not North American who weren't allowed to do it. I don't quite understand that. I guess it's something to do with the payment model, but uh, sorry if you don't live here. But if you do live here, I encourage you to sign up for it. Now, I have a whole bunch of stuff I want to review this week, but I want to start with something that has been sitting on my pile that I just didn't get around to reading for the longest time, and I finally read it, and boy, was it not worth waiting for. But it was a couple, brought up some interesting issues for me that I wanted to talk about. So this is called Thor, Son of Asgard, the Warrior's Teen, and this is part of the Marvel uh, Marvel Age reducing things to manga format for teenagers. So here's the good things about it. Um, it's in manga size. It's a nice compact size. You can throw it in your backpack or your pocket even, take it with you. So that's good. It's a retelling of some classic Marvel characters, obviously Thor, which is aimed at a younger audience. Also good. Good way to get younger people involved in comics. Um, it's in color, which is really nice. And the color is actually pretty good, although I got to say it's really dark in a lot of places. And in general, the story is good. It moves along. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's got a lot of fantasy elements, which are cool. 
Um, it has some jokes, which are also good. So those are all good things. Um, I'm just looking at the back cover. It says, explore the early years of the God of Thunder in this brand new adventure full of marble, <laughs> trying to say this, full of marvel, myth, and magic. Join young Thor and his godly companions, Baldur and Sif, as they travel the mystical land of Asgard on a quest of cosmic proportions. Well, it's not really cosmic proportions. So those are all good things. Here are some of the bad things about it. Um, the art isn't very good, I have to say. So this was um, written by uh, Akira Yoshida and illustrated by Greg Takini. And I don't know who Greg Takini is. It's very much in a manga style. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, there's lots of close-ups. There's lots of uh, repeated panels with action happening in them. It's not left, uh, sorry, right to left. It's not that, but it's very reminiscent of uh, a manga style. There'd be uh, lots of panels crammed into one page, and then you'll have one page, which is a, a giant battle scene, for example. There's a lot of swords and action and... Uh, yeah, you think you know what I'm talking about here. And the characters are sort of uh, overly dramatic, melodramatic, I would say. But there's a lot of scenes, especially the dark scenes, where I can't tell what the hell is happening. There's monsters, there's people with swords. I can't follow the action. I can't tell where the sword is going or where the arrow is going or what the monster is doing or where our characters are in relation to the monster. I think this is a flaw. If you're going to base a book around big battle sequences with dragons and zombies and horses made from leaves, which are actually incredibly cool, you got to be able to tell what's going on. And I don't know if it's because the art got reduced in size down to the manga format or what, but I've just found it really, really hard to follow what was going on, especially in the battle sequences. So that's a criticism. My other big criticism is that there is a female character, right? Sif, who in uh, the real mythology, <laughs> real, real mythology of um, Thor and Asgard and Odin and all that was um, Thor's lover at some point. Now, the thing about her and the thing that she's most known for is having golden hair. And in this book, they've chosen to draw her with black hair. So I'm not quite sure what that's about. Maybe it was to make Thor the only blonde character. So you'd be able to tell them apart more easily. Whatever. It just seems like that was random. And then the other thing about her, she's very competent. She's in there battling and all that. But they constantly make reference to it right from the very beginning of the book. It's, I'm a girl and I can do anything as good as you guys. And the guy is saying, well, maybe you can sort of do everything as good as us. And there's a scene where she proves herself in battle and uh, then they sort of accept it. But it, stop doing that. You know, you don't have to keep referring to the fact that she's not a man and that she's as good as the rest of you. Just show it. Stop telling and do more showing. That would have made that much more satisfying for me. There's also some weird sexual tension that happens. Now, I'm not quite sure how old they're supposed to be here. These teens, so they're teenagers, they look like they're 17 or 18. Who knows? They're gods. How can you tell? <laughs> uh, but there's a scene in which Sif and Thor almost kiss. And then there's a scene later on in which Baldur gets kind of jealous and I don't know, whatever, um, which spoiled it for me a little bit. Uh, I'm not quite sure they needed to do that in here because there are also scenes where they all are constantly saying to each other, oh, we're just friends. And no, it doesn't make any difference that one of us is a girl. We're just friends and we support each other. And no, there's nothing going on. And no, there's nobody falling in love with each other. Okay, maybe this is a setup for later on. I don't really know. But I, I could have done without that tension, you know, especially at a book aimed at teens. 
do we always have to introduce the sexual tension that's supposed to happen if there's a girl anywhere in here? Why does it have to be that way? So I just didn't like that too much. Um, also, so here's the plot. I'll recap it very briefly. Um, Thor and his buds are sent by Odin on a quest to gather four mythical things to make the best sword in the world, I guess, in the galaxy, in the universe. So they have to go to the four corners of the earth. Uh, they have to get a scale from the hide of a dragon. Then they have to get a feather from an eagle. Then they have to get a jewel from deep in the mines. And then they have to get some special water. And all this is going to help make this special magical sword. So that's what they have to do. It's interesting that they fulfill the quest in different ways. So the first one where they have to get the scale from the dragon, they don't actually end up killing the dragon. They just sort of stun him and get one of his scales. When they go to the eagle, they don't have to fight the eagle. They just have to talk with him. They end up fighting these uh, sort of sprites that live in the snow, which was pretty cool. And they defeat them through brain power. And then the eagle just gives them a feather because they've done such a good job, which I thought was really neat. Um, then they have to go get this jewel and they end up fighting sort of these gnomes who live down there. But again, there's some brain power involved. And then um, they don't get the water exactly because there's an evil witch who gets there before them. Now, of course, she she has to be an evil witch because, you know, how could you have something without an evil witchy character in it? Um, and she comes back and they have some battles at the end. There's a subplot involving Loki, who's the half-brother of Thor. And you probably remember him from uh, the Marvel, real Marvel comics as the, the trickster guy. So he's here and he kind of falls in with the witch, sort of, kind of. His motivation for being the trickster isn't really explained, aside from a bit of jealousy about Thor inheriting the throne from Odin. Um, but he's clearly introduced as the rogue element. So... It all culminates in a big battle back at uh, the big castle at Asgard and the good guys win and Thor kind of gets injured, but then he comes back to life and like that. So guess what? It has a happy ending. I couldn't imagine it any other way. And it does set it up for future issues. And there were future issues. Um, I went to the Marvel website because this came out in, uh, gosh, like 2004 or something. Uh, there were more issues of this. I don't know if they got any better or if they were worse or whatever. But, um, you know, as a concept, really good. Some problems with the execution. But it, it's not something I think I want to hang on to and dive into a little bit more. Though I do like Thor. So that's enough of that one.
Now, I have four books to talk about here. Um, two of them I like a lot and two of them not so much. So I'm going to sandwich the not so much stuff in between the um, crunchy goodness of the ones that I really like to make it more palatable for me and for you. So first, let me talk about um, the Legion. Oh, the Legion. I love the Legion so much. Here's what happened. Um, for various reasons, I ended up buying the three most recent, well, now not, but um, trades of Legion, the ones with Supergirl in them, Supergirl and the Legion of Superheroes. But I didn't get around to reading them until just now. So I ended up reading all three trades, one right after each other. And ooh, it was so good to do it that way. It was like an extra large size, um, like the giant size fries you get at McDonald's, you know? It was like extra large size trays paperback where I could read it all the way through and kind of enjoy it. And that was awesome. So I love the Legion and I love this version of the Legion. I love... I love Mark Wade and I love Barry Kitson and I love all the other people who have worked on this. It's just so wonderful. Oh, I really like the way Supergirl is portrayed in here. Um, I don't care about the other DC storylines that this is supposed to interact with. Like, who cares? Um, but the, she shows up and I know that there's this plot with her thinking that everything's a dream. Whatever. I just like seeing her interact with the Legion because she's great. She's so... Um, happy and proactive and right there when things are getting tough and taking on the hard stuff and defeating people. And she's even wisecracking a little bit while she's doing it, which I really like. So I love Supergirl in this. Um, I love the fact that she has this rivalry with Monel. Um, they bring Monel out of the Phantom Zone and immediately the two of them are punching each other up and then it continues through the rest of it where they're kind of like a there's some abrasiveness happening there, which is great. And there's no sexual tension, which I also like. So that was awesome. There's one panel in particular where the two of them are kind of glaring at each other with their chins stuck out and their eyes kind of squinty, which was just awesome. I love that. Um, all kinds of good things happening. I love Brainiac 5 being as condescending and snarky as he is. And then also finding out that he's sort of a psychotic necrophiliac at the same time being obsessed with Dream Girl, who's supposedly dead. That was cool. I like the depth to the characters there. I like all of the characters, the way they're being drawn. When I say drawn, I mean their characterizations, not physically the way they're drawn. Although that's good too. Um, I love all the updating in that they've taken all of these characters from, you know, the Silver Age Legion and updated them and done interesting things to them. It's really, really good. Um, the Dominator War thing, I know that that was tied in with some other DC stuff, but it was fine on its own. I really liked reading that story and not having to connect it with other things and how they ended up saving the galaxy and Earth and everything else. Really, really good stuff. Um, a couple of things that I could criticize here. One is that these three trades, let's see, Supergirl and the Legion of the Superheroes, Strange Visitor from Another Century, Adult Education, and Dominator War. There's no numbers on these books to tell you what order that they go in. The first two books were numbered. These books are not numbered. So what you have to do to figure out what order they go in is open up the book and look in the teeny tiny little print down in the frontispiece that says, this volume collects issues number, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, when you get old, it's really hard to read that. So stupid, stupid marketing, put numbers on them so people can tell what order they go in and if they've missed one and which one they're supposed to read next, that would help a lot. I understand that there's a new trade out that just came out that I haven't bought yet, and I'm pretty sure that doesn't have a number on it either. Put numbers on the books. Come on, make it easy for people to find and buy the things that they want. 
there are so many female characters in here that I really like a lot. Um, Supergirl being one, Saturn Girl being another, who's totally awesome. Um, and uh, Shadow Lass being another, who's totally kick-ass, who can basically beat up anybody and is, you know, very important on her planet. All really good stuff. Now, there was one art thing that bugged me a lot, which was... Uh, a two-page spread featuring Saturn Girl down in the lower left-hand corner. And the thing I like about Saturn Girl, besides that she's cool and smart and all that, is that uh, her costume is pretty modest. It covers her from neck to foot, and she even has gloves, and she has a little cape, too. So you don't see her whole body all of the time. And it's not a costume that's particularly clingy in every place. So it just looks really cool. I like that. Um, but there's one issue in which there's a two-page spread. She's down in the corner, and she's in one of those anatomically almost impossible poses that artists like to put women in, where she's running, but she's turning toward the camera camera at the same time. So you get to see her, all of her ass and her tits at the same time, which would pretty much be impossible to do. And her cape is out of the way for once, so you get a full-on shot of her ass and the material of her uniform might as well be painted on because you get a nice butt crack shot there but also she has the boob sock where it's like there's this special pouch that her tit goes in and that's never in any other shot of her in her costume so those kinds of things stop it just stop it it looks stupid it's offensive and it's stupid at the same time and you know you just don't need to do that why can't the characters be kick-ass enough as it is without that kind of gratuitous boob sockage? So please stop with the boob socks. Um, I like the way that the Legion characters are shown to have various romantic entanglements, but it's very casual and there's no angst about it at all, which is awesome. And there's the implication that it's kind of fluid and they're not hooking up for life and that's okay and everybody's okay with it. Really, really like that a lot. I'm not going to comment too much on the storylines because, well, it's the Legion and the storylines are about as implausible as you could possibly get with all kinds of crazy things happening and uh, weird aliens and things blowing up and monsters and robots and all the rest of it. You know, I have to say, now that I'm thinking about it, the current incarnation of the Legion is almost as cracky as the Silver Age stuff, just in a different way. And I like that. I think that's the way the Legion should be. Um, they're not Batman. They're the Legion. They should be that way. I also like the fact that the Legion in this incarnation um, is very wisecracky, almost in a Marvel way. You know, I expect to hear some of these things coming out of Spider-Man's mouth rather than Brainiac's mouth or uh, Light Lass's mouth. But I love it. I'm, I'm glad that they're doing that kind of stuff. And um, for me, this is just the best series that I'm, I'm reading right now. And I'm looking forward to continuing to get all of the, the trades because I think they make for great reading. So yay for Legion. Keep flying your freak flag. Now I'm going to talk about a book that I didn't really like that much. So it's called The Pushman and Other Stories, and it's by Yoshihiro Tatsumi. And this book was published by Drawn and Quarterly. And it was uh, put together and edited by Adrian Tomine, who does uh, Optic Nerve. And I really like Optic Nerve. I've talked about that before. So this book collects art, these very, very short comic stories that were done in the late 60s and early 70s in Japan. They've been translated and they've been flopped as well, but not just flopped um, to be read the English way from left to right. The panels were actually repositioned on the page to make it look better, which is really good. A lot of care was taken with this book. It's in a really nice hardcover edition. 
the stories in this book are, as I said, all very short. They are very realistic. They portray uh, Tokyo, uh, the lives of pretty much everyday guys in Tokyo at that time, and the very gritty and realistic things that, that could happen. The city is drawn very realistically. There's a lot of dirt. You get to see the sewers. You get to see... Um, industry, you know, like machineries and, and stamping plants and things like that, which at that time, it was very unusual to draw that kind of stuff into a comic. So this was kind of like, I guess, the underground comic of the time where you got to see much more of a slice of life. These aren't fantasy stories. Well, with one exception, um, they're not superhero stories. They're just everyman stories about dark things, things that could happen. Um, they're kind of O. Henry stories in a way too, where some of them have a little twist at the end. Um, they're very depressing because there's not a shred of joy throughout. It's all pretty much down, down, down depressing. The real reason that I, I can't read this book more than once through, which is what I did and a few times to prepare for talking about it, was the level of women hating that's in the book. Man, there's a lot of women hating in this book. It's kind of overwhelming. There are no women in this book as main characters. They're all secondary characters. And um, let me just read you something that the author said, not the author, but the guy who drew it, um, Tatsumi. He says, uh, I am, I myself am a very normal person. Please do not interpret these stories as representative of the author's personality. Okay. So I'm not going to take this as any reflection on him, but in the stories, um, there are two types of women. The first type of woman is usually the wife or the girlfriend of the man main character. And she's usually, um, she cheats on him openly. She works as a cocktail waitress or a prostitute. She is yelling at him all the time to make more money. She doesn't really care about him. She verbally abuses him. She's kind of no good. And in the stories, she usually comes to a bad end, um, sometimes at the hand of the main character. The other kind of woman is uh, much more naive, usually ugly, drawn as a, a very unattractive woman, and pregnant. And sometimes she has the baby, more often she has an abortion. Um, but it's kind of shown that she's the kind of girl, I guess, who's maybe too stupid or too uh, lets herself be used to, and gets pregnant because of it. And that's it. Those are the only women who are in here. One of two types. Um, so not a lot of room for... Uh, a woman that you want to see yourself as. It's all about the men. And the men, who are the main characters, um, sometimes have names and sometimes don't. And it's the same guy in every story. He's clearly drawn as the same everyman kind of character. Um, he's not the same guy, obviously, but he is the same character. And he's drawn kind of in an interesting way. Um, his eyes are drawn really, really round. So he always looks surprised or um, maybe kind of stupid. I'm not sure if he's supposed to be just like artless or dumb or loser or what. Um, he is a loser most of the time and he's just drawn in this way that you can't really tell if he's thinking about anything at all or if he is thinking that what he's thinking is a normal thing. So the stories are about this guy and his place in life and what happens to him and what he allows to happen to himself and what he causes to happen to himself. Sometimes he's the victim of circumstance, but more often than not, um, his life is what he makes it and he makes a lot of bad choices. Maybe that's the point of the book is that this is a guy who makes bad choices. There are um, a lot of 
stories where it's the other thing that there's a lot of in this book besides the the women hating is the abortion <laughs> there's a lot of abortions in this book and uh, not quite sure if this is based on anything other than the author the, the writer's intuition but uh, apparently at that time if you had an abortion it just got flushed down the toilet or into the sewers and I don't know if that was really true or not, but you often see these scenes where those guys are working in the sewer and they kind of look down at the crap that's floating by and there's a, a, a fetus floating by. And the fetuses are drawn about the size of full-term babies. So that's disturbing. Uh, most of the women who are having these abortions aren't even really showing. They don't look pregnant. So clearly they can't be very far along. And in that case, the aborted fetuses wouldn't be very big, but here they're shown as pretty much full-term nine-month babies. And the very first time I saw that in the book, um, I was like, oh my God, someone's murdering babies. They're taking babies out of um, cribs in hospitals or something, and they're killing them and, and throwing them in the sewer. But no, it was supposed to be an aborted fetus. That's weird. <laughs> Why is it like that? I don't understand what that's all about. So um, I'll, I'll just give a couple of plots here. There's one story in particular that really um, put me off in a big way. But here's a sample for what some of these stories are like. The first one's called Piranha. And we see our guy who works at a metal stamping factory. And he's got this bitch of a wife who um, complains about everything. Um, blah, blah, blah. I'll be going out late. Don't bother waiting up for me. So she's obviously going out to... Uh, cheat on him with someone else so he decides to get deliberately injured at work to collect an insurance payment and he does that really doesn't make his wife happy so he buys a tank of piranha fish for some unknown reason and at some point he gets so mad at her he sticks her hand into the piranha tank and it gets kind of bitten up and uh she leaves him he kicks over the tank and then he goes back to get a job at a different plant where they hire disabled people the end Okay, uh, let's see. Here's another story. Um, there's a guy who uh, is a car mechanic and he's got a, a crush on a woman who is a TV star. And miraculously, one day she brings her car in to be fixed, but he sees that in real life she has a boyfriend. And so he fucks up her car so that she'll die in a car crash, which she does, and then he commits suicide at the end. Um, let's see. Going through this really quickly. Um, there's uh, another story about um, a guy who, um, oh boy, these stories are just all so much the same. It's hard to pick one out in addition to do it. Uh, uh, there's a guy who's a phone disinfector. I guess that was an actual um, profession at the time. I thought that was a joke. You know, they joked about it in Spinal Tap that that's what... Uh, <laughs> Derek Smalls did after Spinal Tap broke up. He became a phone disinfector, and that was a, a, like a dying thing in England. So I thought that was a joke profession, but apparently it was real. So this guy's a, a, a phone disinfector, and um, he gets a chance to um, sleep with a woman who's a prostitute, but then he kind of decides not to, and then he just goes back to um, disinfecting phones again. And I didn't really get the the point of that story. Um so there's one that's kind of interesting, and that's where a guy who uh, feels like he's not getting enough out of his life because his wife's always going out and cheating on him, he decides to go out and see what she's doing, and he dresses up like a woman too, um, and he ends up meeting and falling in love with a woman who 
eventually figures out that he's not a woman, and uh, she seems uh, pretty much okay with that. So that's all right. And he kind of questions what his life means after that. Um, and he does go back home to his wife and he sees her leaving and uh, whatever. So that was the only one that had a little bit of niceness in it, although it's it's kind of weird. Um, there's a story about a guy who's a hired killer and how nice it is that he gets to get paid a lot of money and bring home treats to him and his wife or his girlfriend. Um there's a story about a guy who has a girlfriend who um, seems okay, but I guess he doesn't like her very much, and he thinks about leaving, but he doesn't. There's a rat that keeps coming into their apartment, and eventually he ends up choosing the rat over his girlfriend, and it turns out that um, the rat has babies, and he likes the rat and its babies better than his girlfriend, so she decides that um, there's no way that she's going to uh, live with him anymore at the end. So those are the kinds of stories that they are. And I totally appreciate, you know, the the reality of them. That they're not manga stories, that they're not romance stories, that they are slice of life. But man, women sure get the short end of the stick. Now, the most egregious example of this is a story that's called Bedridden. So what happens in this story is that we see a guy who um, has his little Japanese apartment and in his apartment he has a futon and on the futon is a blanket and we see that it looks like there's somebody under the blanket Um, but we can't quite see who it is and he's talking to this person and we're not really sure what they're saying because we can't hear what they're saying he goes off to work he comes home and uh, he gives the person in the blanket um, some food. And then later that night, we see him having sex or being um, jerked off or sucked off by the person in the blanket. Next day, he goes to work. He has a car accident. One of his buddies from work comes to visit him, and he says, look, you have to do this big favor for me, but you can't tell anybody. Um, There's a woman who's a sex slave living in my house. You have to go feed her because otherwise she'll starve to death. So the guy goes. He peers inside the blanket, and he's shocked or horrified or whatever next day he goes back and he says to the injured guy um what the hell and his friend says uh her sole purpose in life is to provide pleasure for men uh she was abandoned as a baby some man took her in and over the course of nearly 20 years she was turned into a sex slave because she's a vegetarian her skin is smooth and silky and with her abnormally developed tongue and vagina she's perfect so second guy kills first guy and goes to um have this woman as his sex slave the end and it says at the very end the sex slave waited in bed for her new master her ninth so first of all um this line about she's a vegetarian her skin is smooth and silky whatever i don't get what that means um with her abnormally developed tongue and vagina hmm i kind of wonder what that means uh can you really develop your tongue can you lift barbells with it or something it sounds, I mean, maybe it's the translation, but that's sure what it sounds like. I guess it means skilled or something. And I don't know what abnormally developed vagina means. That sounds pretty scary to me. So um, the point of this whole story, I guess, is that there were at least nine men who would be willing to do things like kill someone else to have a woman as a sex slave rather than, oh, I don't know, setting her free and letting her live a, a happy life. Is that what it is? Is that supposed to be reality or what the author thinks or what men are really about? Because if that's supposed to be reality, that's horrifying. That's really, really horrifying. Um, 
And the fact that we don't get to see this woman, all we see is this blanket that is where she lives, is also extremely horrifying. She's a cipher. All she is is a mouth and and a vagina for, for men to take advantage of. That's really awful. And it makes me feel really icky to read this story and to see that that's what a woman is, right? That's what a woman is reduced down to the essential part. She's not a living, breathing, thinking human being like the men are. She's just a thing to be used as a sex slave. Ew! That's really awful. And that makes me feel horrible. And I don't want to read stories like that because no, just no, not what I want. So as I said, I understand the historical significance of this particular book and these stories and all that. But man, these aren't stories that I want to read anymore. Um, they're just too depressing and they don't lead anywhere. And I just can't get over the women hating. So that's it for that book. The next book is one that was sent to me by the author, one of the authors, and that I personally didn't care for. And I also think it has some objective flaws. So let me separate those two things out because I like to do that. This comic is called Grace and it's published by uh, Backpack Comics and their site is backpackcomics.com. It's an indie thing and it's a, a Lulu Press comic, which means it's a print on demand sort of thing, which is cool. So kudos to people for making their own comics and not just whining about how bad other comics are, but actually getting out there and making their own thing. So big props for doing that. The authors are Garrett Farrelly and Stephen Loheed. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And I'll read from their website. It says, Grace is the story of three young men who set out one night to right a wrong done to one of their friends. Their simple revenge story becomes a bloody moral fable with a dark supernatural twist. Set in Chicago on the mean dark streets that would put any fictional noir to shame. In the middle of the night, our young characters set out on a doomed mission to set things right. But this isn't the playground and scores can't be settled with rock fights anymore. Along the way, monsters will be found both with and without fangs and the law of unintended consequences will bring an end to many young lives. So I think that gives you an idea of what this is about. It is black and white. There's a lot of black and some white. It's drawn in a very, uh, I would say, scratchy style. For me, at some point, it was hard to see what was going on or even sometimes who the characters were. So that's part of my issue with this is that there are three protagonists and I was having a really hard time in some parts telling them apart because they're in the shadows. There's some very fast switching back and forth between scenes and sometimes I just didn't know who was doing what to whom. Um, they're all white guys and although the artist has gone to some trouble to make them look a little different, one has black hair, one wears a hoodie, one wears a hat, um, you're supposed to be able to tell them apart pretty easily but for me it was kind of hard. The writing wrong part is because one of the sister, the sister of one of the main characters goes to a party and gets presumably raped, but attacked and pretty badly too. And so rather than going to the police or taking her to the hospital, um, the guys decide to go and, and fuck up the guy who did this because they know who it is. So that's where it starts. The rest of the story, not to give away anything, is pretty much Night of the Living Dead. Now, Night of the Living Dead is a great movie which I've seen many times and I like the remake of it as well. But it is at its core a hopeless story because as much as the protagonists fight against the living dead, 
they can't win. There's no way they can win because there's no explanation for why the zombies are doing what they're doing or why they want to eat brains. And that's the same in this book. So the three guys are confronted by uh, a zombie, a vampire, a monster, uh, an evil dead kind of thing. There's really no explanation for why that happens or if it's possible to defeat this thing or why other people turn into these same sorts of creatures. Just nothing. And that was part of the reason why Night of the Living Dead was such a shocking movie. It's kind of hard to understand now, but at the time when it came out was that there was no motivation for it. But that only takes you so far. And in this book, I felt like that was really lacking. And about halfway through, I realized that that was the way it was going to end, that nobody was going to be left alive, kind of figuratively speaking. There are people left alive at the end, of course. So for me personally, I don't like that kind of story because I it makes me feel hopeless. And I kind of finish it by going, why am I reading this if there's if I'm not going to learn anything? And I take a little bit of exception to the moral fable. I don't get how this is a fable. Um, a fable is supposed to be a story that tells you something about life in general, you know, like Aesop's fables. I didn't get that it was a, this was a fable. This was a horror story about people fighting against uh, a really powerful undead being and everybody eventually ends up pretty much getting taken over by it. The whole thing about trying to exact revenge for this woman being horribly assaulted, that's part of the fable, not really. For me, that was very much... Um, just a kickstart to the story. And that's been used as a kickstart to stories for so long. It's really overused and pretty offensive, really. You know, the female character only serves to be attacked and then sets the story in motion for the three men. And she doesn't do anything except briefly reappear at the end of the story. So she's not really a character. She's just um, there to, to kick things off. So her rape doesn't really do anything and we're never really sure what happened to her, really. It's not ever explained. So that bugged me. That bugged me personally. But I also think objectively, it's kind of a cheap way to start a story. There are lots of other ways it could be better. And seeing the female character just used and tossed aside like that is never a good thing. So I don't get the moral fable part. As a horror story, I guess it works pretty well. There are some pretty horrifying things that happen. There's some pretty graphic violence that happens for sure. Um, and there's, there's some unexpected things too. And there's some fairly nice kind of art effects here, but on the whole, it just didn't really do anything. I, I kind of put it down and went, uh, uh, I don't really want to read any more about this. So I think this is a good jumping off point for these two guys. If they're going to make more comics, I think they'll probably do a better job of it next time around. Um, for people who are really into horror stories, they might really enjoy this. I personally didn't enjoy it that much. I think that the art could be improved for sure to make it clearer who's doing what to whom and um, to tell the guys apart a little bit more in some of these scenes where you're only seeing the silhouettes. And also, I think it would help if the change of scene was marked a little bit more clearly than it is in this book, because honestly, it really threw me. Maybe I'm old. Maybe I'm just not good enough to keep up with this sort of thing. And just so you know, Grace is the name of the woman who 
gets attacked in the beginning and then ends up kind of coming back at the end, just so you know. So that's all I have to say about this. Um, thanks for sending it to me. Um, I, I'm glad that I was able to talk about it and hopefully some people will listen to this and will like it enough and we'll send you guys some money and buy it and, and keep making comics and good luck with your next one. And now to the last happy thing. And that happy thing is the latest Conan trade paperback called The Hall of the Dead and Other Stories. Uh, writers Kurt Busick, Mike Mignola, Timothy Truman, and the art by Carrie Nord, of course. Oh, this made me so happy. I was just happy to get it and happy to read it. The story that's in here, the, the main story is called The Hall of the Dead, which takes up most of the book. There are two shorter stories at the end, which have continuing characters from The Hall of the Dead in it. So that was nice. It was kind of like everything packed together. Um, I remember The Hall of the Dead story from before um, in the old days. And I'm pretty sure it was, well, it was either Barry Smith or it was John Buscema who illustrated it. But that story's definitely been adapted before. But I liked it here a lot. Um, the best thing for me about this whole book is that Conan is nearly naked in the whole thing. Just about every single panel. And you know what? For me, it really doesn't get much better than that. The art is, again, just so amazing. I love this art. I love the way everything has a color wash over the top of it. So you really get a feel for where it is. There's these amazing, I'm just looking at this two-page spread where Conan suddenly comes on some uh, warriors in the middle of the night and it's out in the desert and everything is blue and gray and there's a huge full moon and everything is just washed over with this color and the clouds look really kind of fluffy. It looks like it could be snow, but it's sand and it just feels so eerie and remote and quiet. There are whole scenes that have this beautiful red wash over them um, and you find out later why that is, but it just looks completely eerie. Um, there's bad guys, there's monsters, there's magicians, there's a lot of decapitation, there's fighting, there's all kinds of amazing stuff in here and lots of things to be stolen and treasure and all that kind of stuff that Conan's really good at. Uh, I mentioned in the last review that uh, Conan was fighting another giant snake and in this book he doesn't fight a giant snake, he fights a giant toad, big red toad, which is great. I think it's good to show diversity in the number of giant monstrous animals that Conan kills and you know snakes are one thing and toads are snakes are reptiles and toads are amphibians so I think that that's good that there's some variety you know and who knows maybe they could do I don't know what would be next after that probably not a tadpole that wouldn't be scary enough but maybe a salamander a giant salamander that would be a different kind so that'd be good but I just love this um this particular series of stories has a, a woman a two-timing woman in it named Giara and I'm pretty sure her name was Jenna in the last Ad adaptation and she was the one who Conan um, threw off the top of a building into a giant mud puddle which was hilarious I remember that at the time um, and the thing that's good is that Conan knows that she's two-timing but he sticks with her anyway because he likes to sleep with her because she's pretty and you know you can't put anything past him he knows that she's no good but he takes her along for the ride anyway and there's also another character who is referred to as the Gunderman who was also in the previous adaptation and he's sort of a uh, a rival to Conan. They they are enemies, but they respect each other's skill and bravery, and they end up kind of being buddies for part of this. Um, so I'm curious to see where that goes as well. But uh, just loving the Conan, just loving this book. This is a big book. I'm realizing it as I look at it now. It's really thick. So there was a lot collected in this one uh, trade. And man, it's just so good. So I continue to love Conan in a big, big, big way. And I love this trade paperback. And like I said, Conan wearing just a tiny little loincloth, 
always good, always works for me. So to close this podcast, I just wanted to say a few words about Rory Root, who was the owner of Comic Relief, my local comic book store, even though I don't live close to it anymore. And it was very, very, very sad that he passed away recently. There have been lots of tributes to him on the web. I posted something on my blog. If you go to the Comic Relief website, which is comicrelief.net, there's a whole guest book and list of comments from people who were much, much closer to him than I was. And it's great if you want to read through it. It really gives you a feeling for the community that he created around that store. Also, really good to see how many women were posting there because, as you guys probably know from the interview that I did with him, he felt very strongly that comic book stores shouldn't be places that only guys can go and only guys can be interested in comics. So if you want to get more of a feel for who Rory was, go and listen to the interview that I did with him, which I think was show 23. You'll get to hear him talk about comics, which was one of the things he did best. And there is going to be a memorial for him at Comic Relief on June 21st at 7 p.m. People are going to get up and talk about him, but it's always an opportunity to just see the wonderful store that he built. So if you live in the Bay Area, I would encourage you to go to Comic Relief on that day to see what it was about and just to hear people talk about Rory. So that's how I'm going to close it this time. I'm going to miss him a lot. Of course, the store will go on, but, you know, it will not be the same without him. That's what everybody says. Pretty soon you'll be able to remember her Lying in the garden singing Right where she'll always be The door is always open This is the place that I loved her And these are the friends that she had Long may the mountain ring To the sound of her laughter she goes on and on In her soft wind I will whisper In her warm sun I will glisten Till we see her once again In a world without end Oh, it all to Frank Sinatra The song was playing as she walked into the room after the long weekend, they were a lifetime together, peering in the eyes of children in the clear blue mountain view, the coloring in the sky and painting ladders to heaven.
soft wind I will whisper 